Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is New York Times bestselling author Ken Jennings. He is the author of Mapped, Brainiac, Because I Said So, and Planet Funny. He also happens to be both the host of the best game show on television, Jeopardy, where he succeeded Alex Trebek in 2022 and is the greatest Jeopardy champion of all time. His new book is 100 Places to See After You Die, A Travel Guide to the Afterlife, which is published by our friends at Scribner. Ken, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It is an honor to have you here, Ken. So I have told countless people that I would be interviewing you for a book, and 100% of them assume that you have written a memoir, but you have not. This is a travel guide to the afterlife, and I love this book from the moment I received the advanced reading copy. My question, Ken, is what was the genesis of this project? Why write a travel guide to the afterlife? Well, I've written a dozen other books, many of which have elements of memoir, so I'm kind of bummed that all the people you asked weren't familiar with my oeuvre, I guess. But, but yeah, uh, this book, uh, I guess I was in an airport a few years ago, and I happened to see one of those, you know, a thousand X to do before you die books um, mm-hmm. in the in the airport bookstore. But I was looking at it upside down. So I, and I, I saw the title is, you know, a thousand places to die to die before you see. Mm. And, you know, it's a little hacky, but like I had the idea for the title first. I thought, now that's a funny idea Hmm. for a book title. Like I would laugh if I if I saw, you know, instead of one of these see before you die books, a die before you see book. Hmm. And I've always been interested in. I mean, not so much the afterlife, but like in pop cultural depictions of the afterlife. Hmm. Um, When I was when I was a Gen X kid, my. um I had a fairly like young and healthy and long lived family. So I didn't really know anybody who died until I was in my twenties. And so all of my early experiences with death are um, are like Mr. Spock dying or, or or Mr. Hooper on Sesame street dying. Mm. So I think a lot of, a lot of what I kind of figured out as a kid about how the world works, including life and death um, was filtered through pop culture. So it's really kind of a book about that, about, um, how our pop culture thinkers have seen the afterlife. And, you know, that starts with, with Virgil and Homer and Dante who were pop culture in their time, all the way up to movies and books and the good place on TV and all these other afterlives um, well into the 21st century. Absolutely. Thank you, Ken. Um, You write in your introduction that we live in a time of unprecedented religious skepticism can you unpack that statement for our listeners? Mm-hmm. If you look at Gallup's occasional survey where they ask Americans, do you attend a church, a synagogue, or mosque? The number stated about 70% pretty much through the 20th century, like from World War II into the Clinton era, that number hangs at around 70%. Mm-hmm. And then in the new millennium, it just craters like uh, millennials. And then we assume Gen Z will be the first generation who did not go back to church once they settle down and have families. So, you know, for a series of reasons that are, you know, kind of easy to to pick and speculate at, um, 
we're living in a world where for the first time, a majority of Americans do not consider themselves as having a religious affiliation. But what's funny is if you ask people, do you believe in the afterlife? Those numbers have actually gone up since the, since the mid 20th century. Um, so fewer of us go to church, but more of us uh, would like to believe there's something bigger than this life, you know, that something continues after death. And uh, that's really fascinating. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, you mentioned earlier that you were fascinated by concepts of the afterlife and pop culture, and you said that goes all the way back to Virgil and Dante. Um, you build a bridge in this book from Dante to George Lucas and George R.R. R. Martin. How are the worlds created by Dante and these two Georges alike? Well, what's funny is if you look at um, contemporary accounts of pe people reading Dante's Commedia, like why people enjoy uh, the Inferno, uh, and his other afterlives is um, they actually they're reading it as an immersive fantasy novel. You know, they they're enjoying the world building of Dante in a time when there is no epic fantasy as a genre, you know, in the same way that we enjoy looking at the map on Game of Thrones or imagining adventures at Hogwarts or Middle Earth or, or wherever, you know, Legend of Zelda video games. Um, Dante's early readers actually, you know, there were there were uh publications of his work that came with elaborately painted maps mm -hmm. and you know people would really enjoy kind of imagining themselves in that afterlife and because it was a time of less religious skepticism and i guess more fundamentalism they would imagine that this is literally the the fantasy world that would rise up to surround them in the world to come you know whether that's purgatorio or paradiso or if you were naughty inferno yeah absolutely thank you ken um moving on now past the introduction of this book, when you're writing about Dayu, um, you say that each level of hell is more like a county courthouse or DMV than a Dantean Inferno. Uh, we see this in a couple of other areas that you write about as well. Why do you think some cultures' ideas of the afterlife are so administrative? Yeah, the, the Chinese uh, heaven is by far, or hell, I guess, is by far the earliest example. I noticed this where um, the Chinese imagine the Chinese would bury their dead along with, um, you know, kind of stamped travel documents, just so that uh, whoever was receiving them on the other side would have like, essentially a passport and a visa and know know who this was and what their earthly status was. Uh, and this was the same time the Chinese were building out their big civil service, and so they imagined there would be a similar bureaucracy on the other side. And really, that's kind of an unspoken theme of the book is that all these afterlives kind of reflect the concerns of living you know every society imagines that um you know its preferred afterlives are uh are kind of a shadow version of, of what they what they valued in the in their um in the living world mm -hmm. but you know as the 20th century advances we see more of these bureaucratic afterlives and they're generally played for laughs mm -hmm. but if you've ever seen a um if you've ever seen a, an episode of the twilight zone the angels are not robed with halos the angels are kind of nervous little men with clipboards you know the idea that um that heaven and hell have have a bureaucratic staff of clerks and assistants um really became kind of the overarching view of of uh of heaven maybe in the more skeptical 20th century that uh we made it a little more mundane a little more bureaucratic and uh and honestly a lot of the more recent afterlives i looked at on tv shows like dead like me and miracle workers they go even further than that. They make death into kind of a a version of today's employment fears, you know, the gig economies and uh, 
and the digital futures that we're worried about are now reflected. Our worries about technology and employment are now reflected in how we see heaven and hell. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Ken. Um, when you were writing about Eastern Orthodoxy, you state that almost all posthumous itineraries agree on one geographic fact. The damned are sent downward. In Eastern Orthodoxy, of course, the damned are sent upward, but that's not what I want to ask you about. I want to ask you about these common denominators in visions of the afterlife. If you were to take all of the afterlives that you have studied and written about, and you were to create an ultimate vision of the afterlife based on the most common factors of all of these different ideals, what would that ultimate afterlife look like? Well, you know, it changes over time. It's it's generally, you know, the heaven we imagine generally has the, you know, the best and the most beautiful options available to the living. Mm. But if you go back to subsistence hunter-gatherer peoples, they really couldn't imagine anything that great. You know, their heavens do not have jewels and harems and feasts and banquets. You know, they, their um, their heavens mostly just have, uh, <laughs> life was so hard then that their heavens are just an absence of hardship. You know, um, this is a place where it never has a dr- that never has drought or, um, you know, the crops grow year round or they're, you know, a lot of a Native American afterlife specifically, there's, lo- there's always lots of squash here. We have enough squash to get through the winter. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in our time, when we can imagine luxuries beyond enough squash to get through the winter, now our heavens are just dazzling. And, and that's when, you know, you get promised a, a thousand castles with a thousand beautiful women or, or uh, feast, dining tables in every room or, or whatever it is. Um, yeah. the, when it comes to when it comes to punishment, mm-hmm. there's a lot more commonality, I guess, you know, you go back for a thousand years and the hells still have the same kind of very specific punishments, you know, just, you know, a laceration or mutilation of these specific body parts in these icky ways, Uh, a lot of bodily fluids, you know, for thousands of years, people have been very specific. Every culture on earth is like, oh yeah, there's lots of of pus and rivers of blood and stuff in hell, you know, the the grossest things they can think of. And, uh, and often the, the ironic punishments, like those are pretty standard. You know, if you were lustful in life, you get some parody of that in hell. You're, um, wh- whether the hell is Chinese or Muslim or or uh, early Christian or whatever it is, you know the, the there's always some let the punishment fit the crime angle to how the damned suffer. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that answer, Ken. Listeners, we are going to pause here for a word from our sponsors, and then I will be right back with Ken Jennings. The Book and Podcast would like to thank Libro.fm audiobooks for their sponsorship. Libro.fm has the same audiobooks at the same prices as their major competitor. You know the name. But instead of supporting the Big River, you'll be supporting your favorite neighborhood bookstores. Please head on over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore, explore booksellers in the process. I'm back with Ken Jennings, author of 100 Places to See After You Die, which is published by our friends at Scribner. Uh, Ken, back to more specific questions. How is the Bardo 
in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, like a choose-your-own-adventure book? Uh, you know, in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, uh, you know, Tibetan belief, Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhism presupposes reincarnation. But you go to a realm before reincarnation because you need to be purified from whatever the indignities and, and misdeeds of this life are. Mm-hmm. So the funny thing about the Book of the Dead is it keeps telling you, um, all right, you're going to have to do this. And then if you're purified, you're good. And you can either be, you can go to nirvana or you can be reincarnated. Mm-hmm. But if not, then this other thing happens. So the, it's like a flow chart almost. Their Book of the Dead is a choose your own adventure book where they're saying, okay, if you don't get saved at this particular point, Okay, don't worry. There's a plan B that, that now you're going to see these uh, beings. Now, okay, if that doesn't work, okay, then you're going to see these scarier beings. Don't worry. They look like demons, but they've still got the Buddha nature. Don't worry. Um, so, you know, in, uh, when you look at the Book of the Dead through that angle, uh, you know, a lot of these texts really come to life when you look at them through um, through modern eyes and you realize, you know, there are angles to them that are ironic or funny or, you know, very uh, perceptive or revealing about the culture that wrote them. Uh, one of the, my favorite parts about the book was just basically spending a couple of years in libraries looking for the actual, whatever the urtexts were, the sutras or the or the Kabbalistic writings or whatever they were, the Star Trek episodes that would tell you specifically about, about how these afterlives would be if you were there. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Ken. Now to another bardo uh lincoln in the bardo specifically which is a wonderful uh and sad prize-winning novel by george saunders let's fast forward say 500 years and imagine that human civilizations are still thriving do you think a novel like lincoln in the bardo or other novels that you write about may carry the same weight as say paradise lost or the divine comedy yeah it's interesting you know when we when we read these uh these classics of the afterlife, you mentioned Milton and Dante, um, you know, we're still fascinated by them, even if we're a more secular audience, you know, even if we're not imagining the same literal heaven or fundamentalist hell that they were describing. Um, you know, the books you mentioned now, you know, when we read novels that have a, a very well-developed afterlife now, for example, the the George Saunders novel that won the Booker Prize, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he's writing a little more with his tongue in his cheek. You know, we get the sense that Dante actually believes that these are the damned and here's what they're doing on every circle. And when you read Saunders, you're thinking, um, oh, this is one of his amazingly well-developed parallel universes, you know, the declining theme parks and dystopian futures that he enjoys writing about. But he's imagining he's imagining the afterlife as an, an eight, a purgatory in an 1860s American cemetery. And, uh, you know, to us, we know that Saunders does not believe in that afterlife. In 500 years, that might not be clear. You know, in 500 years, people will think, wow, this guy thought ghosts hung around the cemetery, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe I'm not giving Dante or Milton enough credit. Maybe, you know, maybe they were more interested in the the romantic or the narrative possibilities in the afterlife as well than they were about the the theological implications. Yeah, absolutely. And listeners, Lincoln in the Bardo, a fantastic novel. If you haven't read it, I uh, my son was born right when that novel came out, so it hit me a little harder as a uh, as a new father. Um, well, thank you, Ken. Uh, speaking of novels, in some instances, Ken, you choose to highlight a book's vision of the afterlife, um, what dreams may come, or the Harry Potter books, for example. Even though these books have been made uh, into films, in others, you highlight a television series vision of the afterlife. I'm 
I'm specifically alluding here to HBO's The Leftovers, even though that series is based on a novel. How did you make the decision in these instances of which medium to highlight? I'm trying to think what the edge cases were, because those are pretty easy. In the case of The Leftovers, the HBO show has a first uh, season based closely on the Tom Parada book. Mm -hmm. But it's the later seasons where the characters actually begin to explore or hallucinate what may be the afterlife. And those um, those were original to the showrunners and have much less to do with the uh, with the novel. So I think in most cases it was, you know, it was, again, what's the urtext? What's the what's the basis for the mythology here? Um J.R. Tolkien's vision of the afterlife is much clearer in the Silmarillion than it is in the Peter Jackson movies. So that goes in the books, part of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in other cases, uh, uh, I guess one interesting edge case is um, a movie called Wrist Cutters, which is based on an Israeli short story writer that I really liked, but I knew the movie before I knew the book. So a lot of it might just be an autobiographical accident, um, mm-hmm. whether I fell in love with the book or the movie first. Yeah. Um, as an aside, a lot of the same creators were involved in the television series, The Leftovers, as were involved in the series Lost. Uh, do you feel like they learned a lesson with their um, storytelling over a television series between <laughs> these two series? I actually do. I don't know if I how clear I make that in the book, but I think the you know they both have kind of a, the Lost ends in kind of a vague, touchy feely version of the afterlife. Spoilers. Mm-hmm. And uh, The Leftovers is a show where the theme song explicitly said that every episode they were going to let the mystery be. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the show's um, ethos. This is not a puzzle to solve. And as somebody who is just bewildered by the modern trend in criticism of trying to treat every work of art as a puzzle box mm-hmm. to solve, to stay one step ahead of the creator, um, I, I yeah I'm I'm much more of a leftovers guy. I prefer to I prefer to enjoy the mystery without feeling like the audience is trying to outsmart it or or find the plot holes. Basically, what I'm saying is the internet ruined criticism. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think I would agree with that statement, Ken. Um, thank you. My next question is about uh, video games. In the miscellaneous medium section at the end of your book, you write about Grim Fandango, which uh, I played way back when it came out it's a wonderful game um why choose grim fandango over more recent games like hades or diablo and i should say before you answer that i most definitely support the inclusion of grim fandango here (laughs) yeah there's a miscellany section at the back that has um basically just as wide a net as i could cast afterlives from paintings afterlives from comic books afterlives from fantasy role-playing games and theme park rides and i wanted to make sure video games were represented. Um, like as the host of Jeopardy, I know that's a quibble that um, younger people often have about Jeopardy is that we don't ask about video games mm-hmm. as much as we do about you know what older people consider the, the cultural canon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know it's interesting that you had mentioned, you know, I thought about games like um, you know, games that have a, a kind of a hellish infernal Stygian setting, um, you know, Doom and its and its progeny. Uh, and one thing I often found in the book is things that I had assumed were afterlives don't always have, they often have the signifiers of the afterlife, but you don't always see the dead there. You know, like doom is a hellish parallel dimension, but is there any implication that the dead actually go there? Maybe not. The same for a lot of the, you know, the angelic heavens that we see in uh, in popular culture. And so I went with the LucasArts game Grim Fandango for two reasons. One is that I'm exactly the right age to have really fond memories of those those 90s era um, 
adventure games, you know, the, the descendants of Zork and all the text adventures I played as a kid. Mm-hmm. And the game was fantastic. But also in all these cases, it wasn't just, um, you know, who are the biggest name writers who have included angels or devils in their work. It's really, you know, if this is a travelogue. If the conceit of the book is like, here's what to do in these places. Here's where the food is good. Here's where you want to stay, which is kind of a central joke of the book. Yeah. And you want to have a really kind of unique and well-developed, you know, the afterlife as a destination and not just as a theme. And Grim Fandango is definitely a game that really creates a very strange and special world, um, you know, colored by Day of the Dead and other kinds of Mesoamerican imagery, but um, with a lot of modern twists, travel agents that have to recommend different post-mortem itineraries to the dead. You know, you sh- you're a Grim Reaper, but you show up and try to sell somebody a car or a plane ticket or a boat ticket. I thought that was that was something I hadn't seen before. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, the travel guide aspect of this book is amazing. It is the central conceit. And I, I had oftentimes, uh, as I was reading it, pictured myself um, wading through the afterlife with a copy in my hand, much like the characters in Beetlejuice with the uh, handbook for the recently deceased. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, Ken, unfortunately, our time is running short here. And I know your time is valuable, but I do have one more question. Uh, my last question is in respect to the section about um, Islam and other religions or afterlife visions that have an idea of these rivers and such that are filled with milk and honey. And my question, Ken, is what if you're a vegan? Is the idea of rivers filled with milk and honey still supposed to be appealing? <laughs> well, we have to presume that, I mean, it's a central theological question. Do vegans um, go to heaven for their earthly virtue of not eating animal flesh or do they go to hell for being a little bit annoying about their dietary habits um i would presume that uh you know heaven caters itself to the individual this is the very modern take on heaven where um creators are much less likely to commit to one specific vision with clouds and harps or whatever mm-hmm. and so characters are told well yes of course we're pluralistic now and you know you get the afterlife you wanted or believed in or you know there's much less of an idea of judgment and more of choice there's more agency in our modern view of the afterlife and uh, so, yeah, I would assume that uh, there's a heaven full of almond milk, you know, rivers of almond milk. And uh, what's the vegan honey equivalent? I don't know. Um, I don't think there is. I mean, like almond milk and stevia or something. Like <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The trees, uh, the tree boughs uh, lower to you and you can eat stevia. Uh, it's uh, yeah, that's that's what uh, that's what righteous vegans deserve. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Ken. And thank you so much for writing this wonderful book and for coming on to Bookin to talk about it. Listeners, I've been speaking with Ken Jennings, author of 100 Places to See After You Die, which is published by our friends at Scribner. Ken, thank you so much for joining me. It was a pleasure, Jason. That was fun. Once again, I would like to thank Ken Jennings for joining me. Copies of 100 Places to See After You Die, a travel guide to the afterlife, can be purchased from www.explorebooksellers.com with free shipping for members of Explore More Plus. I would also like to thank our sponsors, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Booking. 
Um, my son, Van, who I mentioned earlier, he just turned seven and he's uh, been raised on Jeopardy. It's one of his favorite shows and specifically mostly your version of Jeopardy. So thanks for agreeing to come on it. It's made his week and um, he's really excited about hearing this. Oh, no. Say hi to Van for me. I love uh, I love hearing about kids who are into Jeopardy because that's who I was when I was his age. 